The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 11 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC11. This is Secret Church 11, Episode 2. Family, marriage, sex, gospel. Gospel foundations. Some of you might have saw the, seen the title of this, and you might have thought, what does the gospel have to do with sex or family or marriage? And this is what, listen to this quote from C.J. Mahaney. He said, the gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building where all the classes take place. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. Nothing in the Christian life can be rightly understood apart from God's grace through Jesus' death. They, and indeed all topics, should be studied through the lens of the gospel. Jerry Bridges said the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it's the only message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians, professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living in it, living in it. Luther said the gospel cannot be preached and heard enough, for it cannot be grasped well enough. Moreover, our greatest task is to keep you faithful to this article and to bequeath this treasure to you when we die. So here's one passage that I think best summarizes the gospel in scripture. Then I'll give you a a core definition of, of how... A a core, I hope, biblical definition of the gospel. So listen to Paul first. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine foreparents, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So based on truths all over that text and all over scripture, I would define the gospel as this. The gospel is the good news that the just and gracious God of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross, to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. And I hope in that definition that you'll see character of God, sinfulness of man, sufficiency of Christ, necessity of faith, urgency of eternity. So let's unpack each of those briefly, concisely, one at a time. First, the character of God, the gospel. Good news that the just and gracious God of the universe. The gospel starts with God. He is our creator. And the fact that he is our creator means that we belong to him. The one who created us owns us. We're not our own. We belong to another. He has authority over us. We're created through him, by him, for him. God is our creator. He is our judge. He's just, Psalm 7. He's holy, Isaiah 5. And we are accountable to him. The stark reality of the gospel is that God will judge every single person Represented tonight, every single person in the world will stand before God as judge, Romans 2. God's our creator, our judge, and he's our savior. Praise God, He is not a creator or judge who is indifferent to our needs. He loves us. He alone truly loves us. So we belong to him as creator, we're accountable to him as judge, and we need him as savior. We need him at every second. Now, so just think, alright, just real briefly there. We're going to unpack this throughout the rest of the night. But think about how those truths affect Family, marriage, sex. As the creator, God is the one who created marriage. Therefore, he alone has the right to define marriage, right? God created men. God created women. He alone determines the roles and responsibilities of men and women, not the culture. 
We don't have rights to adjust what He has created to set to our own ideas and thoughts. He's our creator. He's our judge. We are all accountable to Him for the way we handle our sexuality, the way we live and our families. We will be held accountable. Husbands, wives, moms, dads, children, singles. We will be held accountable for the way we live. And He's our Savior. He is the only hope for our marriages and our families and our lives. You, you getting this? The gospel has everything to do with family, marriage, sex. So the rest of the time tonight, we're going to consider how the character of God Affects the way we understand family, marriage, and sex. Okay, second thread of the gospel. Sinfulness of man. The just and gracious God of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people. According to scripture, we, in our sinfulness, are morally evil. Now that doesn't initially sit very well with many of us. To say that. To say that maybe we do some wrong things. We say, okay, I know that. But to say that we're evil, in many minds, takes it too far. But that's how far the Bible takes it. Every, in, every intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Genesis 8.21. I was brought forth in iniquity. My, in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51.5. Jesus practically implies that we are evil in Luke chapter 11. The Bible is clear. All of us are born with an evil, God-hating heart. Some people say, well, I've always loved God. No, you haven't. You may have loved a God that you made up in your mind. But the true God of the Bible, you have hated the Bible says we're morally evil. We're spiritually sick. In Matthew 9, 12, Jesus says we need a doctor. At the core of our being, we have a terminal, malignant, spiritual disease that far outweighs any sickness we will ever have physically. We are morally evil. We are spiritually sick. We are slaves to sin. Everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Here in Romans 6, Paul just debunks the myth of freedom. The idea that you have freedom to do whatever you want. People say, well, I don't want to come to Christ and be trapped down. I want to be free to live however I want. That's a lie. Straight from the adversary. You are not free in your sin. You are a slave to sin and yourself and the destruction that flows from that. Second Timothy 2.26 says you're in the snare of the devil, captured by him to do his will. We're morally evil, spiritually sick, slaves of sin, blinded to truth. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We're darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us. We're children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, enemies of God, James 4, Romans 5, and ultimately we are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in trespasses and sin and the original language for the word there in the new testament for the word dead is dead (laughs) not kind of halfway down you were dead you're dead let that soak in morally evil spiritually sick slaves of sin blind to truth children of wrath spiritually dead that's hopeless there's nothing you can do there how can those whose every inclination is evil choose good how can those who are sick Make themselves well. How those who are slaves make themselves free. How can those who are blind give themselves sight? How can objects of wrath appease that wrath? How many people who are dead choose to come back to life themselves? This is the glaring reality of the gospel. Apart from divine intervention, apart from the spirit of God, we are helpless, hopeless people to do anything about our spiritual condition. Apart from divine intervention in our lives as men and women, in our marriages, in our families, we are hopeless. We need a savior. And God has provided the sufficiency of Christ. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. What we could not do, Christ has done on our behalf. His life displayed the righteousness of God. We are slaves to sin. We need one who has conquered sin with his life. And he has, fully man, fully God. He has obeyed the law perfectly. First Peter 2, Hebrews chapter 4, John 8. His life displayed the righteousness of God. His death satisfied the wrath of God. Wrath of God. God put his Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. What a great word, propitiation. This is the apex of the gospel. God sent his son and Christ has borne the wrath, taken the wrath that you and I were due upon himself. He died on the cross 
is that we might be saved by him from the wrath of God. His life displayed the righteousness of God. His death satisfied the wrath of God. And his resurrection demonstrated the power of God. In the resurrection, God vindicated the work of Christ and declared to all the world that he had conquered sin. Looked death itself in the face and proved victorious. So, this is what Christ has done. There is hope for sinners. For men, for women, for marriages, for families. There's hope in Christ. Keep moving. The necessity of faith. So that... All who have faith in him will be reconciled to God. So here's the deal. Huge to understand. First, Christ is the basis of our salvation. Jesus has done the work, ladies and gentlemen. He has conquered sin. He has purchased righteousness for us. There's no more work for you to do. He's done it. His work on the cross is enough. Remember what this means. If I were to ask you, how do you know that you are right before God? If the first words that come out of your mouth are, because I, then you miss the point. Because I did this, because a long time ago I did this. No, you know you were right before God because Christ lived the life you could not live, died the death you deserve to die, conquered the enemy death that you could not conquer, and He has done a work in your heart. He has done this. So Christ, basis of our salvation. Faith, means of our salvation. The anti-work. Faith. Trust. Surrender. There's nothing you can do but trust in that which has been done for you. So by initial faith in Christ, we are made right before God the Father. We are justified before God the Father by faith. And when we turn to Him, we experience new birth. Born again. It's the language Jesus uses in John 3. So what happens when you're born again? Here's what happens. God opens your eyes. Nicodemus, a religious leader, known as a man who's radically devoted to the word. But Jesus told him, tells him he had no spiritual life in him whatsoever. Spiritual life starts with realizing you cannot earn or merit or work your way into the kingdom of God. You can't make yourself be born. And so God opens our eyes to that. He changes our hearts. You need a change from the inside. Inside out, not outside in, Titus 3. Regeneration, renewal by the spirit inside. This is something that happens inside of you. God changes your heart. He changes your desires, your affections. Opens your eyes, changes your heart, and He enables your belief. Which is the key word that's used in the second part of John chapter 3. That whole passage there. Over and over and over again. At least seven times in the second part of that passage. You see the word belief. That verse that we know. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him will never perish but have eternal life. Belief, faith is the way to that, that new birth becomes a reality. Now, obviously, this is something we do. We believe. Nobody else can do this for us. We must do this. Our eternal destiny hinges on whether or not we have done that. But I want you to see what... I want you to see that even this thing called belief that we do is a gift from God by His grace. You see, all these scriptures that are listed here, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Acts 11, 11, 18. To the Gentiles, God granted repentance. Acts 14, God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. God cleansed their hearts by faith, Acts 15. The Lord opened their heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So in salvation, God gives us this gift of grace called belief. And by his grace, we turn from our sin and ourselves. We turn, we repent, repent. We turn from our sin and ourselves and we trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. We trust him as the only one who can save us from our sins and the only one who is worthy of the worship of our lives. And Lord is the dominant term that's used with Jesus and Acts and Romans when it comes to when it comes to salvation in Scripture, you don't see anybody talking about accepting Jesus as their personal Savior. Instead, you see them all confessing Christ as the Lord over the universe. 
So by initial faith in Christ, we're made right before God the Father. We're saved by faith. But when then we don't leave faith behind. Necessity of faith. We're saved by faith at that moment. Made right before, the God, before God the Father. And then we live by faith. By continual faith in Christ. We now walk with God as friend. So this is where the Bible totally undercuts the idea that's so common in our day. People who claim to be right before God the Father. But have no interest in walking with God as friend. Have no faith. Not saving faith. That's not the gospel. Those who've been saved by faith in Christ live by faith in Christ. Salvation is not just about new birth. It's about new life. We experience new life. And he transforms everything about us. The way we live, the way we talk, the way we love. Everything. So here's the deal. Christ, the basis of our salvation. Faith, the means of our salvation. And works, the evidence of our salvation. Not the basis, not the means, but they are the evidence. James 2, what good is it my brothers if man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? No. So is a brother or sister without clothes, daily food. And one who says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warning the fellow well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, not accompanied by action, dead. So we'll say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. Faith always results in works. So James is saying here, faith creates works. Faith creates, when we have faith in God, That changes the way you live. Faith creates works, and then works complete faith. That's why he says Abraham's faith was made complete by what he did later on in that passage. So here's the beauty. Faith creates work, brings glory to Christ, works complete faith, and God glorifies himself in salvation that is free. It's Because even our work is based on his work, right? It's, it's It's like if I were to give my children money to buy me a gift. When they give me that gift, is it really from them? Well, kind of. But no, I gave myself. Now, don't, it's not a perfect illustration, but the reality is anything good we can bring to God is something that's a product of His goodness toward us. And His grace in us. It's all over John 3. God glorifies Himself in lives and salvation that is free, and God glorifies Himself in lives that are full. So summarize here. I want to make sure we're on the same page. Two summary statements. One, the basis... Means evidence of our salvation are only possible by the grace of God. All grace. All grace. Even our working. It's all over Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 2. All grace. We work with His work in us. Work in our salvation. Fear and trembling, but the power of God at work in us. So the basis means evidence of our salvation only possible by the grace of God. And the basis means evidence of our salvation are all ultimately involved in judgment before God. Meaning, when you stand before God in heaven talking final judgment here and your eternal destiny will be declared openly and finally what will be the basis by which you will enter into heaven to be with God forever what is the basis Christ only way to get to heaven is on the basis of Christ what will be the means by which you will be declared righteous on that day and thus fit to dwell with God in heaven faith you will say father I have nothing in me to stand on I trust wholly in the righteousness of another Christ to stand for me you open my eyes to my, my sin, your holiness, and the Christ is my Savior and Lord. Faith is the means. And in the background of your life on that day, it will be evident that such faith was indeed a reality in your life. And if on that day, the only thing you have to lean on is a card you signed, a prayer you recited, religious practices that you participated in, if there is no fruit of real faith, then it will be shown clearly that you did not have faith at all. Jesus said it. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, when in the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, who endures to the end, all the way down. So, this is not saying that our works are the basis of our salvation, but works are definitely the fruit of our salvation. This is key for our lives as men and women and husbands and wives. We're saved through faith and we live through faith. 
We need Christ to be the husbands and wives and moms and dads and singles that God has created us to be. Faith is necessary for that and works are a fruit of that faith. The fruit of faith is husbands that love their wives well and wives that love their husbands well. And men and women who embrace gladly the unique roles and responsibilities that God has given them. All that leading to the urgency of eternity. Key word forever. Here's the reality. Heaven is a glorious reality for those who trust in Christ. Eternal life. Our citizenship in heaven. At the same time, hell is a dreadful reality for those who die without Christ. Last part of Revelation 20. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Ultimately, the gospel demands a decision. Will you turn from Jesus, live without Christ now, or die and die without Christ forever? Or will you turn to Jesus, die with Christ now, and live with Christ forever? And so here's the deal. We're going to take a break in just a second. But before we do, I want, I want if I could just bring everybody kind of right here. Because the most important question I want to ask of every single 50,000 or so people tonight, I want to ask you the question, have you been born again? Because that question determines everything else we talk about tonight. No hope for understanding these things in the word much less applying them in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, if this one thing is not clear and settled. I am concerned that one of the reasons that pastors and husbands and wives and moms and dads and families in the church are giving so much into sin is because so many are not saved. Maybe church attenders, church members, maybe even church leaders or pastors, but never having been truly born again. So I would ask you tonight, have you been born again? I'm not just asking you, you have cultural belief in Jesus. Every intoxicated man on the street I've ever met says he believes in Jesus. Big deal. Has God opened your eyes to your sin? Has he changed your heart from the inside out? Enabled your faith to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ as the one who saves you from your sins and the one who is Lord over your life. Is this a reality in your life? And if not, oh, I've prayed that over the last few moments and then in this moment, I've prayed that God would draw you to himself. That tonight you would see in a way that maybe you did not even begin to expect that you need a life in Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.